What is up, New Journey? Grab your Bibles, your Word of God, your device, whatever it is you're going to use to look at the Word of God this morning and open it up to Judges chapter 9. Judges chapter 9. Uh, sort of a disclaimer this morning, you are going to need your Bible. Um, shocker, right? Uh, you came to church and the pastor actually expects you to open your Bible and, and read it with him. And I would argue that uh, rather than be disappointed in that, it should be the other way around, right? You should be disappointed when you go to church and the pastor doesn't expect you to open your Bible and, and read it with him. Uh, as you guys are opening up to Judges chapter 9, uh, I did want to just take a moment and note uh, sort of the reason why we kind of structure the beginning of our service the way that we do. Why do we do confession and assurance and things of that nature? Um, the reformers, uh, Martin Luther and the boys, if you will, they believed that uh, the Word of God should be primary and central in a worship service among God's people. Uh, they believe that because they believe that the primary means that the Spirit of God uses to convict of sin and conform people into the image of the Son was the Word of God. And so the Word of God became central in everything that they did as the people of God gathered and worshiped. Um, and so uh, everything that happens before the sermon, if you will, then was about preparing people to hear from the Word of God and everything that happens after the sermon was really to be a response to the preaching and exposing of God's Word to the hearts of the people. And so the reason why we do things like confession and assurance is to prepare your heart to hear from uh, the Word of God. We need to be reminded in our call to worship that there is a God that we have been called to worship. We need to be reminded in our time of confession that we have failed to worship Him as we ought and as He demanded. And we need to be reminded in our time of assurance that he loves us anyway, that he sent his son to die in our place so that we might be restored into that right relationship with him. And once we have established that, we are then ready to hear from God's word, right? So in Judges chapter 9, uh, we're going to talk this morning about Satan and uh, the skull crusher. Uh, and I know this is a bit of a controversial topic, but I've been reading lately about uh, this hot debate in Texas where uh, there's sort of an attempt by some, they believe, to rewrite and reframe the history of the state. Central to this debate is the lore, the folklore that surrounds the Alamo. I don't know if you've been keeping up with any of this. I'll let you decide kind of what you think about all that for yourself. But I think it's a great sort of topic or a great sort of um, illustration of the fact that history is often more complex than our history books can really tell us. Right? And that seems like it's a strange thing because we think of history as being just merely facts. But while, yes, history is certainly factual, those facts then have to be interpreted. And they are usually interpreted, as Napoleon Bonaparte once noted, by the winners. Right? History is written by the winners. And the Bible is written by God. And that makes sense because he is the winner. The winner of a war that predates man's origin and God is the hero of this story but every story has a hero and it has a villain right and so Satan is the villain of the story of the word of God and I think one of the really telling marks of where we are as a society has been uh, really a recent push to make us feel sorry for villains right I don't know if you've noted this like in movies and and in uh, art and things of that nature, there's been this effort to make us feel sorry for villains. Uh, there's been this effort to tell us and show us, hey, it's not really their fault. It's not really their fault. Uh, the way they are, or, or, or they are the way they are because of some societal injustice or some wrong that they suffered in their childhood or their past, 
right? And, th- and this has been, uh, this effort has been pushed at us through the creation of backstories or origin stories. And a couple of examples would be uh, Joaquin Phoenix's The Joker, right? Remember that? And Disney has now come out with Cruella, right? Like, like we're supposed to now feel sorry for Cruella. We're supposed to feel sorry for the Joker, right? We're told that yes, 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 they're evil. But rather than root against them, we should feel sorry for them. And maybe even accept that the reason that they are evil is actually our fault. It's our fault. We don't understand them or we don't accept them. And we are the ones who have decided that their behavior is inappropriate. And that's based on um, abstract societal constructs and things of this nature, right? And that makes them not really vicious and the villain, but the victim. And we're the ones who are to blame for them being the way that they are. And we're told we need to hear their story. We need to hear their story before we decide who really is to blame for all the bad that they do. Right? Well, today, in Judges chapter 9, we're going to examine the backstories of some bad guys. Right? That's where all this is leading. We're going to examine the backstories of some bad guys, and we're going to see um, a handful of things. But in the end, mainly what we're going to see is God always wins because God is sovereign, and praise God, he is a God that saves. So let's meet our bad guys as we read this text. Judges chapter 9 verses 22 through 57. Abimelech, first bad guy, he ruled over Israel three years and God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem and the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech that the violence done to the 70 sons of Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, might come and their blood be laid on Abimelech, their brother, who killed them, and on the men of Shechem, who strengthened his hands to kill his brothers. And the leaders of Shechem put men in ambush against him on the mountaintops, and they robbed all who passed by them along that way, and it was told to Abimelech. And Gaul, the son of Ebed, moved into Shechem with his relatives, and the leaders of Shechem put confidence in him. And they went out into the field and gathered the grapes from their vineyards and trod them and held a festival. And they went into the house of their God and ate and drank and reviled Abimelech. And Gaul, the son of Ebed, said, Who is Abimelech? And who are we of Shechem that we should serve him? Is he not the son of Jerubbabel? And is not Zebul his officer? Serve the men of Hamor, the father of Shechem, but why should we serve him? Would that this people were under my hand. Then I would remove Abimelech. I would say to Abimelech, increase your army and come out. When Zebul, the ruler of the city, heard the words of Gaul, the son of Ebed, his anger was kindled. And he sent messengers to Abimelech secretly, saying, Behold, Gaul, the son of Ebed, and his relatives have come to Shechem, and they are stirring up the city against you. Now therefore, go by night, you and the people who are with you, and set an ambush in the field. Then in the morning, as soon as the sun is up, rise early and rush upon the city. And when he and the people who are with him come out against you, you may do to them as your hand finds to do. So Abimelech and all the men who were with him rose up by night and set an ambush against Shechem in four companies. And Gaul, the son of Ebed, went out and stood in the entrance of the gate of the city. And Abimelech and the people who were with him rose from the ambush. And when Gaul saw the people, he said to Zebul, Look, people are coming down from the mountaintops. And Zebul said to him, You mistake the shadow of the mountains for men. Gaul spoke again and said, Look, people are coming down from the center of the land, and one company is coming from the direction of the diviner's oak. Then Zebul said to him, Where is your mouth now, you who said? Who is Abimelech that we should serve him? Are not these the people whom you despised? Go out now and fight with them. 
And Gaul went out at the head of the leaders of Shechem and fought with Abimelech. And Abimelech chased him, and he fled before him. And many fell wounded up to the entrance of the gate. And Abimelech lived at Arumah. And Zebul drove out Gaul and his relatives so that they could not dwell at Shechem. On the following day, the people went out into the field, and Abimelech was told. He took his people and divided them into three companies and set an ambush in the fields. And he looked and saw the people coming out of the city, so he rose against them and killed them. Abimelech and the company that was with him rushed forward and stood at the entrance of the gate of the city, while the two companies rushed upon all who were in the field and killed them. And Abimelech fought against the city all that day. He captured the city and killed the people who were in it, and he raised the city and sowed it with salt. When all the leaders of the tower of Shechem heard of it, they entered the stronghold of the house of El Berith. Abimelech was told that all the leaders of the tower of Shechem were gathered together, and Abimelech went up to Mount Zalmon, he and all the people who were with him. And Abimelech took an axe in his hand and cut down a bundle of brushwood and took it up and laid it on his shoulder. And he said to the men who were with him, What, have you, what you have seen me do, hurry and do as I have done. So every one of the people cut down his bundle and following Abimelech put it against the stronghold and they set the stronghold on fire over them so that all the people of the tower of Shechem also died, about a thousand men and women. Then Abimelech went to Thebes and encamped against Thebes and captured it. But there was a strong tower within the city and all the men and women and all the leaders of the city fled to it and shut themselves in and they went up to the roof of the tower and Abimelech came to the tower and fought against it and drew near to the door of the tower to burn it with fire. And a certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. Then he called quickly to the young man, his armor bearer, and said to him, Draw your sword and kill me, lest they say of me, A woman killed me. And his young man thrust him through, and he died. And when the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, everyone departed to his home. Thus God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing his 70 brothers. And God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads, and upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jerubbabel. So, last week we noted uh, that there were a great deal of similarities between Abimelech and Satan. There were too many uh, of them to ignore, and so today we're going to kind of pick right back up on this idea of Abimelech sort of pointing us towards Satan. Abimelech, if you don't know, is the son of Gideon, but we noted last week that in so many ways he is the spawn of Satan. But then we're forced to answer a question, and I think this text sort of forces us to answer this question when it says that the Lord sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the men of Shechem. Just who is it that spawned Satan? Where does Satan come from? What is his story? So let's spend a few minutes talking about God's sovereignty and Satan's story. The first thing we want to note about Satan is that he is an angel created by God who was thrown from heaven when he led a coup against God. Now, that is his origin story, and it is simple in its essence, but let's face it, it's pretty complex in its explanation. The Bible, in truth, does not really give a lot of information about Satan or his fallen band of angelic heavenly beings. We call them demons. The first use of the name Satan is actually, if you were just to start in Genesis 1 and read through the Bible to Revelation and you were looking for the name Satan, the first time you would see it would be in 1 Chronicles chapter 21, verse 1. But chronologically speaking, scholars agree that Job is probably the oldest book of the Bible. This would make Job chapter 1 the earliest writing of the Bible, and Satan is all throughout Job chapter 1 and Job chapter 2. So we see him from the very beginning of God's Word. The word Satan actually means adversary in Hebrew, 
And he is the villain in the story of redemption. But he is first and foremost the enemy of God, the adversary of God, and secondly, the adversary of mankind. We see this in Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3 in the creation account. After the creation is complete, God rests. The very next thing we read in Genesis chapter 3 is that uh, Satan's influence leads Adam and Eve to sin. This causes the chain reaction that leads to man falling from perfection. And he wanted man to fall from perfection because he himself had fallen from perfection. We see this in two pieces of prophetic literature. Uh, in them we find reference to Satan originally being a heavenly being and then being thrown out uh, of heaven and down to the earth. The first of these is Isaiah chapter 14 verses 12 through uh, 15. Now in Isaiah chapter 14, uh, the king of Babylon is really the human agent that is being considered, but he is being compared to Satan in that both of them sought to overthrow the reign and rule of God and in the very least set themselves up as the equal of God. And so this is why the king of Babylon is compared to Satan. Uh, Isaiah chapter 14 verse 12. I think we have this to put on the screen for you. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. O day star. That's a reference to Satan. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Now, the reason why we know this is a reference to Satan is the ESV translates O Daystar. In the original King James, it was translated as Lucifer, and that was a fine translation because Lucifer means morning star or being of light, which is why I believe Paul noted in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14, that Satan masquerades and disguises himself as an angel of light. He masquerades as an angel of light because that is what he was, right? Satan wanted to ascend to the throne of God, we're told. And because of this, he was cast down from heaven. Revelation 12, 9 is the second piece of prophetic literature. And it says very simply, the great dragon was thrown down. The ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Uh, according to Revelation chapter 12, verse 4, these fallen angels are demons. And according to Revelation chapter 12, verse 4, Satan was able to convince uh, one-third of the heavenly creatures to join him in his mutiny against God. Uh, Jesus said in Luke chapter 10 that he was there when this happened. He saw it all unfold um, when Satan was thrown out of heaven and to the earth. Uh, his disciples in this text have been sent out by Jesus to do as they have seen him do and say as they have heard him say and speak. And they are astonished when they come back that the evil spirits listen to them. And Jesus tells them that that is not a surprising thing. Since Satan was thrown out, that means God was victorious. And that means that the demons and Satan still have to listen to God. Right? Luke chapter 10, verses 17 and 18. The 72, that's the ones that Jesus sent out, his disciples, they returned to him with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Right? And this is, this is, this is Jesus' statement. I was there. I saw it all happen. Satan lost the battle. And because of this, he still must operate in subjection to God. Right? God is greater than him. Even in Job, the very first mention of Satan, uh, it's clear that whatever Satan does, he does under the supervision of God. 
Uh, he even has to ask God's permission uh, to go after Job. God sets boundaries for what Satan can and cannot do with Job. And Satan must operate according to those boundaries. And so it's a really important thing that we don't skip over the fact that Satan is a created being. And as a created being, like all other created things, he is obliged to live under the rule of his creator. Now, it's also important that we note that when Satan was created, he was perfect, right? He was free from imperfection and free of insurrection. But he fell, and he has led to the fall of mankind. In the New Testament, other names reveal even more about Satan's current nature. Uh, the word devil is from the Greek word diablos, uh, uh, meaning false accuser, or Satan, or slanderer in Greek. And this is the word from which the English word diabolical is formed. Now, that is who he is. Let's talk about what he does, right? Let's talk about what he does. Well, he is a smooth talker, man. Read the, read the pages of Scripture. He is a smooth talker, and he is deadly effective at influencing other creatures to align themselves with him in his attempt to usurp the throne that only God should sit on. Other creatures are very often swayed by Satan's silver tongue, but we do need to make sure that we establish this. Uh, we cannot use that as an excuse. We are all still, every being that's ever been created, still individually responsible for a decision to participate in Satan's schemes. Uh, consider Judas, right, the disciple who helped the Jews crucify Jesus. In John chapter 13, we have this tension-filled account of the last meal of Jesus with his disciples. And when it recounts the guest list, who all was there, it describes Judas who betrays Jesus this way. Uh, John 13, 2. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Zacharias, Simon's son, to betray him. So Judas does this under the influence of Satan. And so it appears that the cross and, and Judas's betrayal are the result of the scheming of Satan. Now, the good news of the gospel is that what Satan could have not known, and he could not know it because he is not God and therefore not, in, not omniscient, meaning he does not know all things and know them in advance, is that for all of his scheming, it only served the purposes of God, right? So you say, well, man, this kind of worked out good, right? Judas's betrayal, Satan's scheming, this kind of worked out good, right? So that means the individuals that were involved in it are not really responsible for it. Well, that's not true, right? These individuals are still culpable for the decision they made. Just as the heavenly beings who joined them in his coup against God were cast down, right? Because they were personally guilty. So were Judas and the Jews and the Romans who all crucified Jesus under the influence of Satan. You say, well, how can you defend that biblically? Well, it's easy. Acts chapter 2, verses 22 and 23. Peter, the apostle Peter is preaching the very first sermon in the history of the church. And here is how he describes the crucifixion of Jesus and who's responsible for it. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. You, you saw it all. You know who this dude is. This Jesus delivered up, and he was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God so you think, well, man, is God in behind all this? He says, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So what Peter tells us is that the cross was the defined plan of God that he authored and planned from eternity past. The cross did not catch the Father. It did not catch Jesus off guard. The cross was the plan of God. But Peter is clear, you killed him. 
You are still responsible for what you have done and played and the part you have played in the murder of Jesus. And that would include everyone in this room. Because while we were not there, according to the mystery of the gospel in the New Testament, we were there. And it was our sin that necessitated Jesus to die in the first place. So we, you, me, we are all personally responsible for the part that we have played in the crucifixion. Now, the Jews and the Romans and Judas... They may have all been under the influence of Satan, but they don't get to use that as a get-out-of-jail-free card. When you drive under the influence, right, and you are pulled over, yes, it is the influence of the alcohol that causes you to drive in a way that puts you and others in danger, but they don't put Budweiser or the liquor store in jail. They put you in jail because... While they may have provided the means, you are the one who chose to place yourself under their influence in the first place, right? You're the one responsible for that decision. Satan may influence heavenly and human beings, and his aim in doing so is to topple the plan of God, or at least throw a wrench in it. But here's what's interesting about God's sovereignty and Satan's story. No matter what Satan does, he only ever winds up serving the purposes of God, because God is sovereign. Now, God being sovereign, what does that mean? It means, first of all, that he is in control of all things, even if he is not the cause of all things. It also means that all things exist and operate under his supervision. It also means that he is free, free to do whatever he pleases and use whatever he pleases to serve his purposes. And friends, this includes evil. God is free to use evil to serve his purposes. Because God is so sovereign, he can even use evil to serve the good of man and the glory of his name. Now, the best biblical evidence of this is the brothers of Joseph. The brothers of Joseph sold him into slavery out of jealousy, sibling rivalry gone wrong. They could have not known at that point when they sold him into slavery how the events of history would unfold. They could not have known that a famine would ravage the land and that through the brilliance of Joseph and the sovereignty of God, Joseph would find this out and discover this ahead of time. He would rise to a position of power in Egypt and he would be able to create a grain stockpile and that eventually his family would come to Egypt to buy grain, to continue to live and that he would be able to keep them, his family, the line of Abraham, the line from which Jesus would come alive. And when his daddy dies, his brothers get nervous. They think, well, you know, Joseph has been waiting for his day of revenge. He was waiting until daddy died. And now he's going to get us, and they come and apologize for what they've done. And when they apologize to him, here's what Joseph says in Genesis chapter 50, verses 19 and 20. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me. I know what you were trying to do. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive, and so they are today. Right? And this should encourage us, friends, that whatever the enemy throws against us, whatever happens in the world around us, we have nothing to fear, as Robert told us in our confession and assurance. Yes, maybe it is meant for evil, but we serve a God who is so sovereign, he can take things that are only meant for evil, and he is not just sovereign, he is also so simultaneously good, he can take evil and create good from it. Amen. Right? In the lives of his people. Evil serves God too. That's a, like, that's a weird thing to say, but evil serves God too. 
This is why the Lord can send an evil spirit between Abimelech and the men of Shechem. This sounds shocking, but it's really not. It's kind of exactly what God was said would happen if you were here last week and heard Jotham's prophetic curse. And this is why I would label what we read really through the rest of the text, the unfolding of God's sovereignty and Shechem's story. Right? And there's more than Shechem involved, but, you know, I'm trying to alliterate, so get off my back. All right? So the first thing I want to know, you say, well, how does God use evil to serve good purposes in this text? Well, I think the first good purpose we see God use evil to accomplish in our text is he uses it to bring justice to evil men. Right? The evil spirit is used by God to bring about the end, the end tens, which is the end of the rule of Abimelech in Israel and the demise of the men of Shechem who killed and then financed the murder of Gideon's son. Well, there's a great question here that I think we do need to answer. There's a reason why I went through all of that stuff about Satan's backstory. Why would Satan and his demons help God out? Right? Like, I'm just thinking, if I'm a demon, if I'm Satan, and some of you probably think I am, but if I'm a demon and I'm Satan, and God says, hey, I want you to go, and Abimelech and Shechem, I'm probably sitting there thinking, you know, every time you send us to do something, it really never works out advantageous for me. It seems to only ever work out good for you. So I'm just not going to go. Right? So why would Satan and his demons help God out? Well, very simply, it is in their nature to do so as created beings. Right? They must do this. They were created to serve God. And while they fight that impulse, they cannot deny that impulse altogether. It is the nature of a created being to be pulled towards obeying their creator. Secondly... If we're just being honest, they can't help themselves. They desire chaos and calamity. And when they are offered a chance to hurt, injure, and persecute the people of God, they jump at it. And they only ask how high and how far can we take it. Over the years, I've messed up a lot of DYI projects. Can I get an amen? And, and over the years of doing that, I have learned a very important rule. Okay? Just hire somebody else to do it. You'll save yourself so much more money and time in the end, right? But a second lesson that I have learned would be this. You must have and use the right tool for every job. And if you don't have the right tool, don't do the job. I grew up believing from my dad that some duct tape and a hammer would fix anything. Just wail on it, right, until it starts to work again and then use the duct tape to sort of cover up the holes and dents. Right? That's the way I grew up. Listen, I've learned a very hard way that every task has a very specific tool that is designed to complete that chore. Well, let's just think about this. If you want cutthroat chaos, that's what, that's what is going to happen in this text. If you want cutthroat chaos to be unleashed between human beings, there is no better instrument in the toolbox of God for such a task than Satan and his demons. Right? And it starts with the men of Shechem. And they rob and pillage all who pass by their city. It seems like a small thing, but it's really actually a, quite a big deal. Um, it's a political black eye. Uh, think about this. Any government that cannot protect and safeguard its borders is really ripe for the picking. And even worse than that, if you can't ensure the safety of tourists and travelers when they visit, right, there's no chance for any commerce. Right? So this is really the men of Shechem doing great damage to the rule of Abimelech. He's the one who's going to take the, the, the brunt of the criticism for this happening in their nation. And then a dude with some gall, named Gall, comes to town. And there's a grape harvest, and they trod the 
grapes and they create wine. It's a time of drinking, a festival to their false god. And Gaul has what we might call a little too much Shechem light. And uh, he says if the men of Shechem will just promise to not intervene, he will lead a revolt against Abimelech and he will become their new king. And not surprisingly, among a lot of drunk folks, he has a lot of support there in Baal's bar. If you're looking for someone to talk you out of a stupid decision, a bar is probably not the place to find that person, right? You're drinking buddies. Zebul, Abimelech's main henchman, we discover, is there. He convinces Abimelech to respond immediately with this genius plan. They're going to ambush the city uh, by moving troops into position while Gaul and his men sort of sleep off their overindulgence from the night before. Early the next morning as the sun begins to think about rising, uh, I imagine Gaul there sipping his coffee, trying to cure his hangover, and he starts to see figures out on the horizon, but Zebul tells him his eyes are playing tricks on him, and perhaps he's even still just a little bit tipsy from the kegger the night before. He's seeing double. By the time Gaul realizes his undoing is too late, and I love this classic line in verse 38 where Zebul asks Gaul where his big mouth is now. Right? Now, here's what we would expect to read next. Okay? End of that. Sounds good. Here's what we expect to read next. They kind of rebuilt the city, kind of repaired some things, and kind of just got back to life as normal. Well, that's what the people of Shechem anticipated doing, but that's not what Abimelech or God had planned. Right? The very next morning, I mean, yesterday was a massacre, but now it's time to rebuild. We're told the people go out to the fields, right? Because the tomato plants don't care that there was a battle yesterday, right? They need to be pruned and do all the things you have to do. So they go out. Well, this evil spirit that came between the men of Shechem and Abimelech, it now turns its attention to Abimelech and specifically to his paranoia and his insecurity. And it plays him like a fiddle and it convinces him that not only did the men who followed God need to pay, but the whole city must be destroyed because he can't trust any of them. Now, the people got up the next day, they simply go back to work. And why did that offend Abimelech so deeply? Well, because they did not spend any time reaffirming their allegiance to him. They didn't beg for his forgiveness. And his response makes it clear that it touches a nerve deep within him. And when you come to power the way Abimelech did, killing his brothers and all other potential heirs to the throne, you must always, always be looking over your shoulder and around a corner for every new candidate or contender who might want the throne for themselves. And here is Abimelech's default move when he feels threatened. His default move is to eliminate any competitors to the throne by murdering them. Well, he's a creature of habit. And as 1 Peter says, a dog will return to its vomit. And Abimelech once again orders the senseless murder of his kinsmen. And then the leaders of the city, along with women and children, they gather in this sort of impenetrable tower fortress. Abimelech builds a bonfire around the tower. And the goal is he will either burn them alive or he will force them to leave the safety of the tower to face the sharp edge of his sword. It's not much of a choice, is it? be engulfed in flames, or endure the sword. A thousand die in the tower. Now what the neighboring city Thebes has done to Abimelech is not actually clear. The fact that Abimelech immediately takes his scorched earth towards them leads us to believe that they were somehow involved in Gaul's rebellion. And the scene at Thebes is basically the same as at Shechem. The climax of the story is once again going to happen at a 
city tower fortress. Abimelech is nothing if not predictable. And he decides to build a bonfire. And you have to get him behind the mind of Abimelech. He, he had the sense that, man, everything's going according to plan. Everything's good. These people don't know what hit them. He leans over to light the fire this time. And as one commentator I read noted, he found that a mysterious woman had a crush on him. And she crushed his skull with an upper millstone. And in this, the people in the tower of Shechem, or the people in the tower of Thebes escape. These were evil men. And I think this tells us another thing that God uses evil to accomplish, or another good purpose, is he uses evil to crush the skull of usurpers and bring freedom to evil men. People like me. And people like you. It was a humiliating way for Abimelech to die. It was humiliating in this era for a man to be killed by a woman. He asked his armor bearer, Abimelech does, um, his personal assistant, to save his honor. But the technicality of who actually killed him is forgotten. And everybody knows the truth. Abimelech has died an embarrassing death, having his skull crushed by the work of a woman. And Abimelech's end is reminiscent of Satan's at the cross, isn't it? God had promised Satan in the garden in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that one born of a woman, through the work of a woman, his skull would be crushed. And Jesus is that skull crusher. And he has crushed the skull of Satan at the cross. And just like Abimelech must have thought things were progressing nicely and according to his plan, so must have Satan at the cross. He had to already have the caterer hired. The DJ is setting up, right? Everything is going according to plan. Things were right on track, right? They were right. Things were right on track. Things were going according to plan, just not the plan they thought. Things were going right on track and things were going according to the plan of God. What happened to Abimelech and what happened to Satan was the systematic unfolding of God's plan. Verses 56 and 57 that wrap up this whole section tell us that what happened to Abimelech was not coincidence, but it was providence, that God was behind it all. And the cross was the plan of God all along. It was not where Jesus met his end. It was an end to a means. And it was the means by which God would crush the head of Satan and would cut off the head of the power of sin of all, for all of those who would trust him forevermore. Right? So, as we wrap up our day, let's talk about now God's sovereignty in every sinner's story. Friends, all of mankind is in one of two camps. This is where we find ourselves. All of us is in one of two camps. We're either with Satan as Shechem was originally with Abimelech, and they received the same judgment as he does, or we're not with Satan, and we are with God and his son, and we receive the same reward that he does. And I know it's not a popular, tolerant, inclusive way to understand the world and eternity. It's very black and white, but this is how the word of God presents it. Right? We, are, we are either with God or with Satan. We either go to heaven or we spend eternity in hell. Jesus saw it this way in the text that Robert read for our confession and assurance in Matthew 25, 31 through 46. He, Jesus presents this prophetic scene about the final judgment and he presents it in very narrow terms, doesn't he? It was very narrow. According to Jesus at the final judgment, there's going to be two groups, sheep and goats. Right? So you're either a sheep or you're a goat. 
right? And the sheep are his and the goats are not. Sheep and goats, one or the other. These are our only spirit animal options. Sheep or goat. And the sheep receive reward. And why did they receive reward? Well, you're tempted to say because they fed the hungry and clothed the naked. The sheep received the reward for nothing more than being his. <laughs> That's why they received the reward. Not for what they do, but because they have received what he, have, he has done on their behalf and become his sheep. Now, they do a ton of stuff. Which is them demonstrating that they were living the same kind of life that he did. That the, the spirit of Jesus inhabited their hearts. They didn't just claim faith. Their faith produced fruit. Fruit followed their faith. That's always the order. And it makes total sense. If I claim that the spirit of Michael Jordan was alive within me, I know he's not dead, but if I claim that the spirit of Michael Jordan was alive within me, the next time we went and balled, you would expect to see a noticeable improvement in my game. And if I'm clanking bricks and can't jump over a phone book, you have no problems probably calling me a liar and saying, you might have the spirit of, you know, Mike Jordan, but not Michael Jordan. Right? Well, friends, if the spirit of Jesus is alive within us, that will tangibly, visibly demonstrate itself in what we do. Right? But the point is, is that the spirit must indwell first. We got to become sheep before we can act like sheep. Good works and morality are not what merit us a reward from Jesus on judgment day. All that matters is being his, his sheep. And his sheep are rewarded for that, simply being his sheep. And they showed that they were his sheep by what they did. And the fact that they were sheep and not goats was obvious. It was obvious. But I don't know if you've ever thought about this. Like, you know, if I was to put up a picture, uh, you know, alpaca versus llama, that would be hard, right? But sheep versus goat is not hard. You look at a sheep, that's a sheep. You look at a goat, that's a goat. But you can't tell any difference between a sheep and a goat just by what they do. They all do the same things. What makes them different is their genetic makeup, right? Sheep and goats do the same thing. What makes them different from one another is who they are on the inside, their genetic makeup. Well, those who belong to Jesus have been given new hearts. We have been made new creations. We are not like the goats anymore. We have been transformed from being goats to being sheep, right? We have a new genetic code. In Judges chapter 9, you were either with Abimelech or you weren't. You were either with Abimelech or you weren't. In Columbus today, you're either with Satan or you're not. And we don't think in these terms, right? We just don't. That's not the way our culture thinks about it. That's not the way we think about it. And you say, Kevin, you know, why are you talking? You may be good on this, but you're going to meet people who are very confused how you can say they're with Satan when they don't like, you know, sacrifice goats and virgins into volcanoes, Right? They're going to be confused about this. You need to know how to answer that question. Listen, we don't think in these terms. We don't necessarily see ourselves as being with Satan just because we're not radically, deeply in love with Jesus. But the Word of God and Jesus Himself do see it that way. Listen, we, we think about, you know, this person's a Buddhist or this person's a Muslim or this person's an atheist. The Word of God sees it very plainly. You're either a Satanist or a Christian. That's it. You're either a Satanist or a Christian. If you're with Satan, then you join him in his judgment. As the men of Shechem were with Abimelech, and their reward for being with him was death by fire. And as 
They were rewarded with death by fire. Those who join Satan against God will receive as their judgment burning for all eternity in the flames and fire of hell and what Revelation calls the second death. And friends, just like there was no escape for the men of Shechem once the fire was lit, there's no way of escape from hell once judgment day arrives. Hell was not created for mankind. Jesus said it in Matthew chapter 25 verse 41. When he said to those on his left, the goats, he says, Depart from me, you curse, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Hell was built to be their eternal home, their eternal tomb and cell. It was created with Satan in mind, not mankind. And yet if we reject God's right to reign and rule in our lives just like he did, just like Satan did, we are no different than him. We are no better than him. And therefore we receive the same judgment he does. There's no third place. Right? There's, just, there's no third place where, you know, good people who just happen not to love and trust Jesus on earth go. There's no third place that's maybe not as good as heaven, but not as bad as and awful as hell. There's no third place. There's an urgency to all of this that we don't get. And I think one of our greatest hindrances in seeing the urgency of our need to decide who, we're, who we are with is sort of the, the sleepy way that life unfolds. The sleepy way that life unfolds. The dullness of life. It numbs us to seeing the tender mercy of God that is calling us to trust Him and all before it's eternally too late. And I don't know if you've kind of ever thought about this, but when you read this passage, if you didn't have Jotham's prophetic curse preceding it, and you didn't have God sending the evil spirit in the very first verse of the section that we read, and you didn't have those last two verses, if you were just to read every other verse, it seems as if things just sort of unfold in a natural way, and Abimelech is either stupid or just had bad luck. Right? The judgment is so gradual in the passage. It's just gradual. There's no fire from the sky. There's no smell of fire and brimstone as we read, which would tell us to watch out because God's judgment is near. We need to be careful about assuming that God's actions are always loud. He doesn't work in the shadows, and He works clearly, but He doesn't necessarily always work loudly. Israel didn't necessarily see or hear God at work in the events as they were unfolding, the people who were living there. They didn't necessarily see God at work in all of this. Well, friends, you're here today. You're here today. Another sleepy Sunday in small town Mississippi. The smell of the smoke of hell is not in your nostrils. Fire is not falling from the sky onto me. But God is calling you today. Lovingly warning you today. Friends, he's been at work in so many of the little things of your life that brought you to this moment. And I know you haven't necessarily seen him at work. You haven't necessarily heard him at work, but he's been there. The people of Shechem got up one day and went to work, unaware that it would be their last and that they would be burned, by, burned to death by fire. One day humanity will wake up and go to work, or to the lake, or to the store, unaware that it is their last. And some 
will burn for eternity and some will be blessed for eternity. Satan's end is sure. Hell is his lot and it is his portion. The only thing left to determine is who will join him there. And I pray that you won't be one of them. I pray that you won't be one of them. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, we pray and we ask that in these moments your spirit would convict of sin. That for the person in the room who hasn't necessarily thought of themselves as with Satan, but they wouldn't have necessarily identified themselves as being with Christ either or in Christ, that they will see that that means that no matter how good a person they are or how sincere they are or how kind they are, how religious they are, that they have aligned themselves with a usurper to your throne. And as he has been banished, they will too. And usurpers, sinners and wretched folk just like me. Christ can forgive. Our sin is great. Your grace is greater. Where our sin has multiplied, your grace has multiplied all the more. And I pray for those in the room who are sure of their salvation. Would hear me when I say there's a, a dying and a lost world out there full of people who are good people. And that they hear me say that hell will be full of good people because they weren't God's people. That we would be motivated to not just feel some guilt or feel some shame or feel some nudge in a certain direction, but that we would be motivated to actually leave this place and as we say each week, go be the church. Life is unfolding at what feels like a gradual pace, but at the end of the day, before we know it, our lives will be over. And what will they have meant if they have not been about Christ? I pray that we never forget that hell is real. We, heaven is real. Christ is on the throne. And we need to see that for the sake of our own assurances and joy. But we need to also remember that hell is just as real. And eternity is real. And people who die apart from Christ and in their sin really do spend eternity there. And we are your mouthpiece. We are your ordained means of reaching the world with the gospel. Forgive us of our sin of silence and apathy. Move in you and us. Give us a desire and a zeal and a passion for your glory and for the loss that consumes us and sends us out of this place on fire, determined to see whatever part of the world that we can affect reached with the name of Jesus Christ. And we ask these things in his name, for his glory.